Welcome to Eyes on Conservation, episode 193. I'm Kristen Tiesch, the producer and host of today's episode. Before we dive in, I'd like to ask you a favor. If you haven't made a pledge to our Patreon page yet, I encourage you to do so. Producing this content takes a lot of time and hard work, and to do it on a regular basis, we need regular support. So please head over to patreon.com slash wildlandscollective and choose a pledge level. For $1 a month, you get quality environmental storytelling every two weeks. Thanks for your support. Now on to the show. Let's talk about the climate crisis and the extinction crisis. It's not hard to feel like there's nothing we can do to stop these cascading and devastating global environmental trends. It's like we're literally carrying the weight of the world on our shoulders, and it feels too big, too heavy. That's where Wildfires to Wildflowers comes in. Ildiko Polony is the founder and visionary of this new organization whose mission is to restore California lands for climate stability and reach carbon negativity by 2046. I just had lunch with Ildiko, and she'll tell us a little bit more about her organization and why she started it. Hi, Ildiko. Great to see you. Tell me a little bit more about your background in ecology, environmental science, and how you became an activist. Well, I've been an activist uh, most of my adult life. I started with um, actually Hurricane Katrina relief um, and then climate activism. I founded a few student groups on campus when I was at City College of San Francisco and Northern Virginia Community College. And um, I've done a bunch of, you know, small projects, raising money, raising awareness. I um, did direct action around the Keystone XL pipeline. And then I was sort of awakened to habitat restoration because I actually burnt out um, from all the activism in the school. And I was a professional dancer and I was just, I was working really hard. And I spent about a semester gardening in my backyard. And I discovered just this plethora of wildlife that existed in my tiny mission district backyard without any attempts on our part to help it survive. And I asked myself if all of this can be here, despite over 200 years of paving and polluting in the second most densely populated city in the country, which is San Francisco, what could be here if we actually tried to help nature and how do we help nature? And so I started Googling around and and I learned it was you plant the plants that the animals evolved with. So that would be, in this case, California native plants, plants native to San Francisco. And so I started doing that um, and just sort of learning on my own. I had already in school um, been studying environmental sciences, environmental studies. I've been studying both the social and the, um, you know, abiotic and biotic um, components of, of our environmental issues and then I, I even focused in even more on um, habitat restoration um, in urban areas in particular. So I sort of switched my coursework, and then I also started volunteering a lot in um, like the Golden Gate Park, Oak Woodland, in just little remnant patches of habitat in this, in this city that were never bulldozed. I started volunteering doing habitat restoration and teaching myself as much as I could, and it led me to a career in this. Yeah, so it's really interesting how you're equating, you know, activism with gardening and habitat restoration. Can you just go into a little bit more detail about that? Well, I see 
gardens as, as a gateway. Anybody who has any amount of open space, it could even be a windowsill, can um, figure out what plants are native to their area, what animals still exist in their area, what um, plants those animals might enjoy, and they can put those plants in their windowsill, in their backyard, in their front yard, on their fire escape, on their porch, on their deck. They can go into their local open space and begin volunteering doing invasive species removal or planting plants or collecting seed to then grow the plants. Um, So it's a really hands-on, immediately satisfying experience because you see the fruits of your work right away. So the kind of activism that I was doing before was a lot of political pressure, which is incredibly important, and anybody who engages in it is doing, you know, God's work. But it also requires a different kind of patience, I think, because these social systems move quite slowly and we don't often see the fruit of our labor right away. Um, the ecological systems, you can begin to see the fruit of your labor right away and, and there's something that, that feels deeply, deeply gratifying. When I think of um, you know, the environmental sort of crisis that we're teetering on the brink of or that we're engaged in right now, um, both, are, both are important. The political approach and the political pressure is incredibly important and so too is the hands-on actual work of restoring the damage that that we've done over the centuries and millennia. And all this led you to found wildfires to wildflowers. Tell me about that spark. I was reading this article in the San Francisco Chronicle about uh, Jerry Brown's Global Climate Action Summit that he was holding in San Francisco, bringing together all these leaders to talk about climate change as the Trump administration was pulling out of the UN Climate Accords. And at this summit, Jerry Brown announced an executive order that California would be carbon negative by the year 2046. And the article that I read said that this was not possible, that we didn't have the technology, that the technology that did exist was nascent and underfunded and too expensive and couldn't be scaled up. And not once did any of these articles that I read mention plants or habitat restoration or photosynthesis. And, you know, plants obviously have been sequestering carbon for billions of years. And so we need more plants. And we need the right plants in the right place that support the ecosystem that those plants are a part of. Now let's talk about the place. So I went on your third wildfires to wildflowers hike. And it was at, it was in Marin County at, where was it? Ring Mountain. Okay, and why Ring Mountain? Um, well, Ring Mountain is a really beautiful example of a relatively intact native perennial grassland. So um, one of the largest ecosystems or, or that covers the most geography in California are grassland ecosystems. They're also some of the most degraded ecosystems. Um, they're just run, you know, thoroughly run over by with uh, invasive annual grasses, mostly from Europe, and they've lost a lot of their ecosystem functioning. Because Ring Mountain has um, what's called serpentinite soils, so that the base rock of a lot of Ring Mountain is serpentine rock, which um, has high levels of naturally existing mercury and sulfur and asbestos and other minerals that most plants around the world have a hard time dealing with plants that evolved in the in these conditions can and those are the native plants so ring mountain is a really good example of intact perennial grasslands that used to cover uh, all of our grasslands in california and perennial grasses have a really 
amazing role to play in carbon sequestration because their root system reaches you know, up to 10 feet into the ground while their greenery up top is you know, maybe two feet maximum. So they're actually, the carbon that's, that they're sequestering is going into the ground more than it's going into the air, which is what we need. The soil is depleted of carbon and the soil worldwide is a major carbon sink. So that's where the carbon needs to go. Okay, so now let's go to Ring Mountain and go on a little walk. Hello, good morning. I'm Ildiko Polony. I'm the founder of Wildfires to Wildflowers. The tagline is restoring California lands for climate stability. What we'll do right now is we're going to do just like a round of introductions. Um, so you'll say your name, how you spend your time, and maybe one thing you hope to get out of the hike. And then I'll tell you a little bit about what to expect, and then we will walk. So I will demo. My name is Ildiko. I work as a native plant nursery manager for a nonprofit in the Bayview district in San Francisco called Literacy for Environmental Justice. And in my spare time, I do this. And I want to have more time to do this because I have like huge dreams and I want to actually realize my dreams as much as I can. Um, and what I'm hoping to get out of this experience is to give you guys a good experience. And I would love if every person walking out of here, like, understand sort of the logic of wildfires to wildflowers and, and the potential and feels motivated and engaged and excited and hopeful and empowered. So yeah, if I've done a good job, that's how you guys feel. So do it. <laughs> um, I'll pass it this way. Okay. Um, so I'm Kristen and I'm holding this microphone because I'm producing a podcast about Ildiko and this new organization that she's founding and bringing us all together on hikes. The podcast was called Eyes on Conservation. Um, I'm also an avid hiker and some of my hiking gang members are here. Uh, so I can't wait for this hike. I'm Paul and I'm a board member with the Yerba Buena chapter of the California Native Plant Society. Um, I'm a friend of Zildico's. I'm very grateful to be here today and be part of her organization. Um, I'm retired, so I spend my days uh, volunteering, doing restoration work in the natural areas in San Francisco. And um, I also lead hikes to help uh, disseminate what's going on within these natural areas. I took a course at City College, which was the first naturalist certification course in San Francisco. And they're going to be doing more ongoing ones, so I'm grateful for being here today. Thanks. So tell me, who is Paul and how did you connect with him? So Paul Buscal is an old friend. Um, I met him when I was working as a nursery manager for San Bruno Mountain Watch. Um, he was a board member and eventually became board chair of that organization. Um, he is native to California or grew up in California. He's lived uh, at the foot of San Bruno Mountain most of his adult life and has spent decades uh, protecting that mountain, learning about the mountain, learning about the plants there. Um, I think his profession, his professional career was in um, actually water management and for the San Francisco Public Utilities Commission, but he is one of the most dedicated uh, naturalists that I know and is incredibly knowledgeable. I've learned a lot from him. How do you pick where you conduct your hikes and how do you get these amazing biologists, naturalists, and activists to all join in? And what's, what is also the impetus for you to bring all these people together? 
Well, I want to bring all these people together because the scale of the problem requires all kinds of minds and thinking, um, all kinds of expertise, all kinds of experience, all kinds of personalities, all kinds of uh, points of view. So a concrete goal is to politicize the habitat restoration community and actually get them presenting their knowledge uh, to elected officials and then to inform like the climate change activists about actual ecological needs and opportunities. Um, so I've observed that while the climate movement is growing, it's really exciting. It's growing a lot. Young people are getting involved. There's not a lot of knowledge about the importance of ecosystem restoration and the and the sort of the, the bedrock that needs to be protected and enhanced um, in order to begin to reverse some of the worst effects of climate change or at least start to stabilize it. Um, so that's one reason. And, and, and I get them involved just by talking to people, meeting people, um, putting myself out there, sending emails, calling people, and then someone might in, you know, introduce me to another person, another person, another person, and it's making friends, really. It feels like making friends. I choose the locations based on sort of strategically a combination of what are places that we know, those who are leading hikes and can, can actually talk about, and then who do we want to be there. Is this a convenient place for them to come to? And what are the lessons that we're trying to teach in that specific hike? Um, and what is a location that will demonstrate those lessons? Thank you so much, everybody, for that. That was, was really nice to get a sense of like why you're here and who you are. And it's cool like how many different worlds we all come from. Um, I'm really happy to have like climate reality people here and sunrise people here and people who are working on that side of the political spectrum and then also people from the naturalist world who aren't doing that and I think like the cross-pollination of the two is super powerful. Like, if, we, if we can politicize the conservation world and then sort of ecologically inform the climate change already politicized grassroots movement, like yes, <laughs> we can really be powerful. Um, so right now James is passing out these plant guides and they're just plants that, that we'll see. Um, they might not be in the stage of development that is photographed. So a lot of these are photographed with their flowers. Um, so they might not be in their flowering stage. But I think that in and of itself is a really kind of beautiful thing that many people who aren't um, working with nature or exposed to nature regularly don't quite get is that, you know, it's pretty obvious, but plants change throughout the year. And you know, if we think of we, we see one photo of a plant that it always is gonna kind of look like that, but one of the exciting things is to begin to become familiar with the nuances. Because it's always changing and it's always informing me anyway. I learn so much. So that's one, one goal that I might have is to begin to show, show you all these details um, and how kind of inspiring and beautiful they are just, just in the fact that they exist, like just in their mere existence. Um, the other thing I wanna say is we're standing on Miwok territory, post Miwok land right now. California was stewarded and cared for, managed, um, shared with native peoples for thousands of years before Europeans came. And the way that the landscape behaves today is in large part because of the stewardship and the care of the native peoples for thousands of years. So like one of the first lessons that I like to try to get across is that humans are actually an integral part of nature and always have been. Like we always have been a keystone species. And the way we choose to interact with nature is what determines how you know, nature can thrive or not. So the example that native people set in California for about 10,000 years is one of um, a reciprocal, more harmonious relationship, but that also 
greatly um, was focused on their needs for food, shelter, culture, um, spirituality, crafts. So it wasn't like this hands-off thing that, you know, sometimes we might have been given that impression um, as, as students, like as kids, that there was like kind of a hands-off attitude and that's the way that nature survives is if humans aren't involved. But, but that's, that's not actually the case. And so I'll be pointing out <clears throat> along the trail different examples of plants doing different things that are actually a direct result of co-evolving with humans for like 10,000 years. So that's one, one message. Um, we'll learn about like what habitat restoration is. I think a lot of people know, but, but we'll like break it down. Like what is an invasive plant? What is a native plant? What makes an invasive plant invasive? I'll talk about the global carbon cycle. I'll talk about how restore, like why and how restored ecosystems sequester carbon at higher rates than degraded ecosystems. What is a degraded ecosystem? And then we'll do like plant appreciation, like plant love. So there's going to be a lot of like, this is a toy on, this is a coffee berry, this is a thing, and 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 I'm pointing out the different little beautiful parts of these plants, and and they really bring me a lot of joy. So like I had a, a kind of rough week inside myself, and. Um, and this morning as I was like lying in bed wishing I was asleep, I was like, how can this, this moment with you guys be something that, that heals me, you know? Um, and, and really the answer is, is just um, connecting with you, connecting with the land, and like noticing those details. So, so all these things come together, right? The healing comes with the plants, with, with um, guidance for how to steward our land in the future from the past, the way that it was before, done before. And then another thing that can be helpful is to call the name of the plant. So can we like practice that? Like, that's an oak tree. And so you can say oak tree. Oak tree. The best way to learn them is to just continue seeing them. And then you'll also begin to, to, to feel sort of the differences, like when it's dry and there hasn't been a lot of rain, they may look one way. When there's a lot of shade, they may look another way. But even though two of the same species could look entirely different, you begin to, to kind of have a sense for what is what. All right, are we ready? Yep. Yeah. Okay, good. Let's go. That's a bay laurel. Bay laurel. There's a bay laurel here, and then there's a coast live oak tree growing up in it, which is kind of cool. Do you see the difference? Yeah. The bay and the coast live. <laughs> Why does that happen? Well, sometimes um, it could be that the oak started in sort of the protected shade of the bay as a young, younger tree. And then, so sometimes some, some plants can be nursery nursery plants for others like the coyote bush does that a lot where it creates a kind of more welcoming environment for for other plants to thrive when they're young so the bay you can cook with it does everybody know that yeah yeah don't use too much of it <laughs> it's yeah it's more potent than the one that you get in the store from italy otherwise oh. you'll ruin your dish oh, okay. you can um crush a leaf and smell it maybe everybody mm. knows what it smells like already yeah. you can pass it down. oh yeah um, um this right here is toyon Toyon. Toyon gets red berries. Toyon. There's another Toyon. Toyon. You see the red berries across the way? Oh, yeah. Oh. For Christmas this year. I um, made Toyon berry sauce. Yeah. So, like, instead of cranberry sauce, made Toyon berry sauce. Um, they're not quite as sweet, but they have a really... This is the one thing that I love about eating native plants is it's... Um, 
entirely unfamiliar flavors, but that are also reminiscent of stuff I've eaten before. So it's like this whole world of discovery that's really cool. So there's an example of the, you know, two plants of the same species looking entirely different. And you might ask yourself, why is that? You know, where is this one growing? Is there more sun here or is there more sun there? Um, maybe this didn't get pollinated or maybe it actually looks to me like the berries probably already fell. So it's in a quicker life cycle. Why, why could that be? And, and that's kind of what like being a naturalist is. Like you, you observe you ask questions, you observe some more, and you begin to kind of come up with theories. So you, you read the landscape. I hear lots of frogs. Yeah, lots of frogs. Do you know anything about the frogs? Pacific chorus frogs. So Paul's gonna tell us a little bit about the frogs. They're Pacific chorus frogs. We would call them tree frogs. And uh, they need seasonal wetlands for their, uh, to lay their eggs into their tadpoles. So this road right here is cutting the wetland off from the water. So one of the, like probably one of the most powerful things we could do for these frogs in this kind of habitat would be to create a corridor. Maybe put the road above, maybe get rid of the road and make people go another way. But right now, the, the, um, right where we started, there was a ditch and you could see a culvert um, where the, the, the river was, or the creek was diverted underground. So like in the city of San Francisco, for example, which is where I live, um, there's, I don't know, something like 15 or 20 different rivers that have been culverted. So when I learned that, I was like, no, there just never were, you know, I, that was like mind boggling to me. Growing up in the city, I just thought it was always a place where there was no water. But actually humans like to settle where there's water, right? And then, and then we just divert it and put it cover it up. Yeah. <laughs> so what if, we, what if we brought those creeks and rivers to the surface? This is poison oak with the um, right here. very upright. He's brave touching oh it. So, okay, so and that's a good point. Poison <laughs> oak, the roots, the stems, and everything are uh, have the oil on them. But this is oxidized. Unless you scratched it, then the oil would come out. So if you see little black marks, but it's you don't want to be breaking it because then, of course, it becomes. Are the black marks how you identified it? How did you? The, know? the oil? Oh no, just by the sticks. So the the oil is black. If you if you um, scratch or break open the branch, a black oil will come out, and that's what makes that's what makes you itchy. So I have a story about poison oak. I used to get poison oak really really bad. Like we would go out in the field and we'd be collecting seed or salvaging or whatever. No one else would get poison oak. I would come home. I would like do all of the protective measures. I would like wash everything, and I would still be covered in poison oak. Then I started taking a homeopathic remedy of poison oak. I started eating it internally, wow. and um, I like stopped getting it. If I knew I was going to be going out, I would start taking it a few days before and then I would take it a few days after and I stopped getting it. Then I kind of stopped taking that and I didn't really get, I continued to not get it very much. So it's as if I had built up an immunity. Then there was a moment where I was on um, Yerba Buena Island, it, you know, the island that's in the middle of the Bay Bridge or the Bay Bridge goes through it. And I needed to collect buckeye nuts. So we'll see some buckeye trees, I think on this. So I needed, I needed the buckeye nut for this specific project. And it was, I saw the nuts, they're these big orange nuts and they were like lying on the, in the duff through a thicket of poison oak. Like I couldn't get to the nuts unless I went through the poison oak. And I was like, I'm gonna go through the poison oak. But I was also kind of scared, right? And so I said a little prayer to the plant. I was like, poison oak, I love you. I respect you. Please don't make me itchy. And I went through 
and I got the nuts, and you guys know what happened. You got poison oak? I did not! <laughs> I didn't get poison oak! So now, every time I see the plant, I say, I love you, I respect you, sincerely. Please don't make me itchy. So, um, you know, I did not grow up with these practices at all. I grew up in the middle of a city. I grew up without a backyard. But people, you know, humans for most of our existence have had those sorts of relationships with plants. And I've myself experienced um, when I'm relating to a plant, it relates back to me. And, and it feels really good, it's less lonely. So like we as humans, um, you know, we create these big cities or we have been creating these big cities and we, we isolate our species in these big cities. And, and what, one thing that we're doing is we're, we're preventing the opportunity for more friendship um, with other living things. We have our pets, right? So that kind of shows how much we actually crave friendship with other living things is that we also, you know, we have our dogs. There's also soap root, soap plant here. This was an important food source for native peoples. And then it has, if you see here, it has this like um, fibrous casing. So it's in the onion family. So it's got kind of a, a casing similar to an onion, but more fibrous. Um, and with this, they used to make brushes. Um, it also has a really soap-like quality, the bulb does. If you like break off a piece of the bulb and mix it with water, it's it, literally, you can clean your whole body with it. Like it's, it's like soap that you buy in the grocery store. And they also use that as one of their primary fishing tools uh, by pulverizing it and they would milk the water in the calm waters and as a neurotoxin that would affect the fish and they would come to the surface but it wouldn't kill them. So once the water cleared they would be, um, wouldn't have the effects anymore. Yeah. That and the buckeye seed. I tried eating it one time but I didn't, I didn't cook it long enough and it made my stomach a little funny and my friend who ate it vomited. So it does have, it, it does have saponins in it, which is the neurotoxin and also the thing that um, makes it soapy. So you have to cook it long enough for the saponins to be um, neutralized. So, so there's like a big learning curve with a lot of these foods, but, but they are edible. So this right here, kind of on the edge of the path here is yarrow. This is a circumpolar plant, so it grows all over the Northern Hemisphere. It grows in Europe and Asia. And it's like one of the most early known medicinal plants that humans used. Um, so it can be used, it has like um, immune bo boosting properties. And then the leaves, if you crush them, you can put them on a wound it'll, and it will stop the bleeding. Um, and it spreads through rhizomes. It sends like an underground stem um, looking for f like new light and nutrients and then it'll send up a shoot. So it's a really amazing way that um, the plant can reproduce quickly because each new shoot becomes a new plant, which is like the power of restoration. Okay, I'm gonna do the, what is an invasive plant? What is habitat restoration speech? So we've been walking through, you know, habitat where I've been pointing out a lot of the native plants because those are the ones that I, you know, that I'm happiest about. <laughs> Um, but we've also been passing an incredible number of uh, invasive species. So the reason why plants become invasive, I'll talk about that. We have different climates all over the world, right? California is a Mediterranean climate. So if you think of different regions in the world where wine is grown, that's generally Mediterranean climate. Those are generally where our invasive species come from. It's not a universal law, but that's like a, gen a general kind of pattern. So like Australia, Chile, um, Mediterranean in Europe, um, South Africa, 
so what happens is these plants have evolved with similar climates, so they're they're adapted to the to the amount of water, to the amount of sun, to the amount of moisture in the air, to maybe similar soils, maybe not. And they're brought over here sometimes by birds or other animals, but generally to the degree that humans move around and we continue to move around at greater rates and you know trading stuff, generally they come from humans. Sometimes they come in the hooves of cattle or animals that we bring, sometimes they're like attached to the ship, sometimes they're in, so they come from humans, sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally, and because they're adapted to the same climate, they're really happy here. But what hasn't happened is, you know, back in their home, they co-evolved, like all the plants do here, they co-evolved with um, the fungus and the diseases and the birds and the mammals and all of these things that also eat those plants. So the plants are food, like, like this is why restoration begins with the plant, is because the plant brings the insects, which brings the birds, which brings the bigger birds, which brings the mammals, which brings the lizards, which brings, you know, so it's like a cascading web. So one thing that I think is really beautiful to me about learning about habitat and nature is that it is not linear. It is not one size fits all. It is, it is this like interdependent, um, co-evolving dynamic system that is constantly reproducing itself and constantly growing. And it does this because it's co-evolved together. So the plants and the animals discover little niches. Um, and when you bring a plant from another place that hasn't evolved with the predators into the place that it's at, then that plant has nothing that puts it in check. So, you know, you're, there's a native grass here and a non-native grass here. The native grass is getting eaten because it's been there for thousands of years and all of the animals know it. It's similar to if you were to go to a foreign country where you didn't recognize any of the food, you wouldn't know what to eat. You might get a little hungry, right? You'd have to be shown. This native plant is getting eaten and eaten and eaten. This invasive plant therefore has more room to grow and soon you get a monoculture of the invasive species which equals no food or very little food. Some species might be able to adapt to it. So that's the problem with it. And when we have just a hillside covered in eucalyptus, like you can go under the canopy of that eucalyptus and you can listen and you'll actually hear hear less. It'll be quieter than if you go into an oak woodland and you know open your ears, you'll hear more birds, you'll hear more life, you'll hear it because that's the food that they evolved with. So the thing that's really powerful about it is it doesn't take much to flip it in the other direction. And humans can have a really active role to play in that. So you can come and you can spend a few hours or a couple minutes or an entire lifetime like Paul's been doing. Um, pulling up invasive species and the native plants will have the seed in the in the seed bank in the soil So sometimes, you know, there might be a hillside covered in English ivy where the only thing growing is English ivy You come in you and you remove the ivy You don't even have to plant anything because those seeds have been waiting to be germinated Waiting for space and light and nutrients to be able to you know do their thing The other thing is actually planting so Kristen's a seed collector the reason why Kristen's a seed collector is so that she can bring the seeds back to the nursery and grow, which is what I do, grow the plants and then actually plant the plants out into the open spaces. So like on this mountain there's a endangered endemic um, Tiburon lily that only grows here. That's the other thing that's so cool about California is we're like in the top 25 biodiversity hotspots in the world which is amazing and then the Bay Area is even more biologically diverse than other parts of the state. A reflection of that is the existence of these species that don't live anywhere else. Like San Bruno Mountain has like something like three different species of manzanita that don't live anywhere else. And then we see that here too. One thing I'd like to point out, two things. Yeah. Um, 
most of the grasses you're standing in are invasive European grasses oh. that are uh, annuals. But these are perennial bunch grasses and they co-evolve just like that lily in the serpentine soils. So when we get up a little higher where there's less um, leaf litter and stuff that creates this topsoil that these European grasses can adapt to, they can adapt to the almost pure serpentine soils. So when we see like mainly bunch grasses, that's a good example of co-evolution with its surroundings. So. Paul mentioned the bunch, right? You can see, do you see this this kind of bunching thing happening? Yeah. This is one plant that came from one seed. This is a perennial plant. It can live up to 100 years. This is looks like Elemis glaucus, which is a blue wild rye. And then here, all this green stuff. This is, these are annual invasive grasses. Um, and they live one year and they die after they set their seed in the springtime and then the hillsides dry up in the summer. They are no longer alive. And they set, they set one seed, they grow basically one stalk, and they die in like three or four months. So all of these, most of these came from Europe. They came as feed for cattle or in the cattle's hooves. And it's, it was an ecosystem type conversion that happened really quickly in California where it went from hillsides covered in these long-lived perennial grasses with like other perennial forbs. Forbs are um, non-woody perennial plants. Perennial is a plant that lives multiple years. So the grasslands were covered in these perennial grasses with flowering forbs and then annual wildflowers. And the color that existed in California, these rolling hills was, was different than it is today. So, you know, like you drive down the 101 or whatever and you're like all really familiar with the golden rolling hillsides and dappled oak forests, right? Well, before the Spaniards came, in the summertime, it was more of a, like, do you see the sort of gray, green, blue color? There would be dieback like this, but, but it wasn't like that gold dead look. And also the wildflower displays were, like there's um, accounts from the early California settlers that talk about California being like this garden, and they talk about the, like the rolling hillsides changing color through the year. So like wildflowers, white, purple, blue, yellow, orange, pink, red um, that would be as their bloom time comes and goes depending on the species these are the colors that we would see throughout California um, with this long-lived always at least kind of green plant so that's like that's to get paint a picture of what it what it could be these grasses live up to 100 years they have deep root systems their root systems can go like up to 10 feet into the earth the um, annual invasive grass from Europe lives one year and dies. I'm trying to pull out one so you can see its root. It's like an inch and a half, two inches maybe. It's a little longer because it's springtime and it like sent its root down, but it probably won't go further than this. So all plants sequester carbon, right? All plants photosynthesize. They sequester carbon dioxide from the air. They use the carbon for their growth both down into the ground and up into the air and they release ox or up into the sky. They release oxygen as a byproduct, which is what we breathe. So plant, all plants photosynthesize, all plants use the carbon for their growth. This plant does, this plant does. But imagine a plant, so the global carbon cycle, right? We have, there's four carbon sinks on the planet. There's the hydrosphere, which is major bodies of water. There's the lithosphere, which is the Earth's mantle and crust. There is the pedosphere, which is the soil. And there's the atmosphere, which is the air. So there's, those are all the places that are carbon storage places. Because of human activity, 
the carbon has been released into the atmosphere and then when it's in the atmosphere also the water sucks it up. So right now of two out of the four carbon sinks on the planet are totally maxed out. Like we have human civilization, if you call it that, I'd like I have problems with that word, but anyway, if we go back like 12,000 years when agriculture started, you know, in the Fertile Crescent, um, there was 275 parts per million of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Now we have 405 parts per million. 413 <sighs> as of January 2020. Okay. 413 parts per million of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, which is why, you know, we're having these extreme weather events, warming. You, you know it, right? You, 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 you know the dire reports. The soil is, is depleted of carbon, though. The soil does not have carbon in it to the extent that it did before, and that's because of the agricultural practice of tilling. So they, they turn the soil over. The soil that had carbon in it becomes oxidized. It turns into carbon dioxide, and it goes into the atmosphere. So it actually, tilling releases carbon into the atmosphere. And then also, obviously, the burning of fossil fuels takes the carbon out of the soil and releases it into the atmosphere. Plants put the carbon back into the soil. They put it into their bodies, and they also put it into the soil. Anything with long roots that goes down, you know, tens of feet, is going to put more carbon in the soil than something that has a root system that's like two inches long. So if we restore California grasslands to be the native perennial grasslands, there's a tremendous amount of carbon that we can be sequestering. Some of the, the ecosystems in California with the highest carbon sequestration and storage potential, so trees don't store carbon quite as well because they have so much mass on top. So if a fire were to sweep through or if the trees are cut down, then all of that carbon that went into building their beautiful canopy can also be released into the atmosphere. Whereas if, if a fire swept through here, you know, we got about two feet that's going to go, but 10 feet potentially that's staying in the ground. So there's tremendous potential to sequester carbon through habitat restoration, through habitat restoration of native perennial grasses, through restoring wetlands. Those systems have a higher carbon sequestration and storage rate than other systems. Okay, so we know all plants sequester carbon, right? So when we're planting the plants, we're planting the plants for the insects, for the birds, for the entire system. We're not just putting this rose bush here and, you know, and then it's an isolated rose bush. There's all these things that have interdependent, um, co-evolved relationships. And it's that, those relationships that create the functioning of the cycle. So if we're restoring habitat, we're helping to restore a carbon cycle locally. If we do that on a global scale, we can help to restore a carbon cycle globally. And the other really good news about it is that it feels really good to do this habitat restoration work and to be out connecting to nature. I have a really cool thing about bunch grasses yes. to add. Um, not only for carbon purposes, but bunch grasses, because their roots are so long, uh, they can actually like pull water from deeper in the soil and bring it up to the surface for other plants to use. So in drought years, uh, habitats that have a higher proportion of bunch grasses actually do much better, not just the bunch grasses, but also the other plants around it because they have access to more water during harder times. Restored ecosystems, like restored, balanced, functioning cycles um, are more resilient in the face of extreme weather. So there's all of these benefits to um, restoring habitat besides just carbon sequestration. And we'll talk more about that. Okay, let's keep yeah. going. Okay. So we're going to stop and we're going to be talking about lichens. So if we were hiking on San Bruno Mountain, 
which is Franciscan sandstone and quartz crystal, the outer part of San Bernardino Mountain. And maybe I could do a little geological talk when we get to the top. Sure. But like those rocks and like these serpentinite rocks, these would be greenish, bluish, whitish streaks. If you saw some when we came up the hill where it got broken, did anybody notice the serpentinite, the actual colors? But because it's covered with lichens, and there are probably 30 different types of lichens growing on this rock right here, with the exception of these mosses. So these are mosses, but all these different colors, the grays, the blacks, you've seen orange in some areas. These, these are organisms. They have a symbiotic relationship. There's three organisms that uh, make up the structure of these lichens. It's fungus, and fungus are like the structure. And they take nutrients and minerals out of the air, sulfur in particular. That's one of the primary food sources that it takes out of the air. And then algae, and the algae is like the, what creates the photosynthesis to support the structure of the fungus and the algae. And now they're, they found a new organism that exists within the structure. It's a yeast. And I'm not sure the type of yeast that it is, but these are organisms. And, and they're an indicator species that the air is not even moderately polluted. Because if it was moderately polluted, the air, these wouldn't survive. So they're, they're an indicator species. So there's another example of reading the landscape, like we're reading the air through the lichen. Click right here, what I'm passing around in your hand, Noah. Um, has usnea on it, right? Yes. Um, or old old man's beard, I think is another name for it. And um, that also has a lot of medicinal properties. I think um, women used to use it as like a menstrual menstrual pad. Um, it has like a natural antibacterial. How do you feel about um, doing a silent hike until we get to this big grandmother oak tree? I vote for that. That sounds great. Yeah. We'll listen and look and go inside ourselves. Does anybody have anything to say? I love listening to people's squishy footsteps, and especially <laughs> since I'm recording the sound. <laughs> I noticed less birds than when we were down below. Like when we first started the hike, even when we got out of the car, it was like, oh, birds and activity. Mm -hmm. And then on our way up here, it was just very calm. Do you have guesses as to why there might have you might have heard more birds down there? You know, there's no trees, so mm -hmm. it's just out, you know, just grasses. So. Yeah. There's not, like, cover for the birds or yeah. places for them to perch as much. Yeah. Yeah. In the springtime, when the moth larvae are uh, emerging in these oaks in particular, this is one of the primary um, habitats for birds to be able to get worms for their babies oh. and grubs. Oak trees are host plants for something like 20 or 25 different species of moths and butterflies. So you plant one oak tree and you're providing habitat for that many numbers of just in the Lepidopterus family, which is the moth butterfly family. Like not even counting all the other stuff. But, and then of course the, the caterpillars are um, the main food source for baby, baby birds. So baby birds need caterpillars. So if you don't have the plant, you don't have the butterfly, you don't have the caterpillar, you don't have the birds. And then, how old do you think this tree is? 
hundreds of years old, probably like, I don't know, two, three hundred years old. And oaks are amazing because, like Kristen said about the grasslands, how the native grasses with their roots so deep uh, bring up water. Oak trees spend half their life living and the other half dying. And their root system can go out 300 feet from the tree. And in the summertime when it's really dry, those root systems die back. But they create these tubes of, of dead dieback, which is a water resource, and then the roots reemerge back into those in, in the wet times. Like she was saying, they, they uh, bring water to other nearby surrounding trees and shrubs. Yeah, the other, you know, people have said that if you have an oak tree in your backyard, you're not going to starve because the acorns are like highly nutritious, high protein food source. So um, California Indians all over California, there's uh, how many different species of oak are there in California? Does anybody know? I would say like 20 or more species of oak in California. All of them produce acorns. All of those acorns are edible. Some were like more prized as a food source than others. Like different species have different tastes. Um, but this past fall, the acorns come out in the fall. This past fall, Alana and me and Leandria and Denise, who's over there, um, went acorn gathering and acorn processing. We did acorn processing and acorn leaching and acorn to be able to eat the acorns. It's a, it's a long process, but it's gluten-free. Right? It's a gluten-free food source. <laughs> so like, what if instead of importing um, almonds that are like high water use, what if we just maintained and supported and stewarded and cared for our existing oak forests and harvested those acorns and used those to eat? So part of, part of the whole suite of climate change solutions is going to involve like retooling our agricultural system. And I'm really excited about different like native plants like we could begin to incorporate into our diets in a way that would be responsible, not in the way that we've done it where we like plant them on, we like bulldoze, make everything like a blank slate and then plant the thing in strict rows so that we can harvest more. But if the goal is harmony and it's not speed and it's not efficiency and it's not profit, but if it's like more goodness for everyone, then um, it doesn't matter if it takes longer because the trees are dotted around to harvest the acorns. Is there anything else we should say about the oak trees? Um, was it burned? Um, is that arson or, or like campfire or um, wildfire? Does anybody know? Probably was a wildfire. California evolved with a fire regime that is, was much more frequent than what we have now. And it's because native peoples used fire as a really prominent stewardship tool or care for the landscape tool. It would open the understory in forests, for example, so they could hunt easier. Because of that happening over thousands of years, the ecosystem grew to depend on fire. So there's certain plants that won't open their seed pod unless there's really high heat. So those plants won't be able to germinate without a fire. Oak trees have also have evolved with fire. The fire will cleanse the um, sort of the mosses and the, the excess kind of stuff that likes to grow on the bark um, that helps the health of the tree. So native peoples that, depending on the ecosystem, they would set fire every like two to 20 years. Um, so that's one reason why this campaign is called Wildfires to Wildflowers is because, you know, wildfires are something that are becoming more and more frequent and more and more severe and more and more scary, right? And yet we need fire. And fire is part of the restoration toolbox. And after fire, there's also fire following species. So those same, those same plants that can't open their seed pod unless fire happens, those are called fire following species. So after fires, botanists go out, they get super excited because they're like, ooh, what are we gonna see now? So wildfire, wildflowers come. 
Um, also, there's many, there's some invasive species that are adapted to fire, like French broom is one, but there's a lot that are not. So the, the fire can um, prioritize and, and foster the native species over the invasive species. Cal Fire does have grants that is like fuel reduction grants. So that's another thing is that fire, if you are burning regularly, there won't be as much dead buildup. Like, like you can even, you know, there's these dead branches on the understory because they're not getting as much light. So that, that's not the best example of fuel buildup because it's higher. Um, a better example of fuel buildup would be like, like potentially this bay tree. Ladder fuels. Ladder fuels, fuels that, so this will burn and it'll send It'll, it'll send the flames higher into the canopy, and that's when, when the older trees start to become threatened. So um, Cal Fire does have some funding for fuel reduction. A lot of the fuel reduction that they do because people are so afraid of fires is just like slashing and cutting, which is not horrible, um, but it can be bad if it's not done with an ecologically trained mind. Is there burning in tribal land? Yeah, and the tribes are definitely involved in, in, in trying to both restore their own land and spread this knowledge. That's something that I should have said from the very beginning. They need to be involved, like, out of the gate. And there's areas where fire departments and tribes are working together, but it's, hap it's happening, like, isolated. Right. There's not, like, an overall California policy that is um, funding that, that's prioritizing that. Um, yeah, let's keep going. Cool. Serpentinite, which we refer to as serpentine, serpentine grasslands, is what we're on here, is uh, a metamorphic rock that's created under extreme pressure but low temperature. And it's got a lot of magnesium in it, and of course, natural asbestos, and schist, which is blue and green schist, and uh, chromium and nickel. So if you ever see serpentine that's shiny, that's the, the metals that are in it. Uh, one of the other, my favorite formations, that red layered rock, that's radiolarian chert. And radiolarian chert, there's two types. There's radiolarian chert that were single-celled uh, microscopic sea creatures that had a silica body. And it took a thousand years for one centimeter of those layers to be created. And so you think about the, the time that it took to create these massive hillsides that we see of, of chert, as, as well as in the Marin headlands. And there's another one that's uh, diatomaceous chert from diatomes, which were single-celled algaes that were disc-like, glass-like uh, organisms that were in the ocean. But what's really interesting about all these formations is they came from down near the equator. Um, west of the Panama Canal and they moved up here on the Farallon Plate which is now underneath the Pacific Plate so if everybody's walked over in the uh, Santa Cruz mountain range and all the way up through the Marin Headlands that's all on the Pacific Plate that's all moving north and that's over the Farallon Plate now and it's really interesting as far as time and what's happened like San Bruno Mountain that's Franciscan sandstone on the outside with quartz crystal and the inner part is uh, gray wacky and the inner part is younger than the outer part and if when you scoop ice cream and it, and it, and it rolls like that San Bruno Mountain was actually turned upside down so it's, it's pretty amazing how geological features have, have formed but um, this is really special you know they, they um, 
they traveled a long way to get here. <laughs> the California State Rock. Yeah. Um, and it's also, some of you might have heard this, but, but it's one, it, um, because of its chemical composition, um, serpentine-based soil uh, has like, you have to have specific, the plants have to have specific adaptations to be able to thrive in that soil. So a lot of times serpentine grasslands are some more pristine than um, other grasslands from, with other bedrock um, soils. Um, so this, this mountain can be like fairly, uh, like a pretty good example of what um, the grasslands looked like before, depending on where you're at. This is like our, our last little meeting spot. I just want to kind of lay out the vision for Wildfires to Wildflowers one more time. Um, before we part ways. It started in September of 2018. I was house sitting in this like fancy house in the in Pacific Heights and they got the newspaper delivered to their door like super old school style and I was eating breakfast and I was reading the San Francisco Chronicle and there was this article about um, the Global Climate Action Summit that Jerry Brown was holding at that time. Um, so he held that summit when Trump pulled us out of the UN Climate Accords. Um, and he made an announcement at that summit that California would be, that he was passing an executive order to have California be carbon negative by the year 2046, meaning that we would be sequestering more carbon than we're emitting. And the whole thrust of that article was like, we don't have the technology, like, we don't know how to do this, this isn't possible. And even framing it as technology was really bizarre to me. So I read that article and I read like maybe four or five other articles covering the same event that all had the same, this was like the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, like on small, smaller online publications that all had this, that same thrust of like, we don't know how to do this. We could do like bioenergy fuel crops or massive ocean algal blooms or direct air capture plants, like these giant like concrete things that have these big fans that are like turning in carbon dioxide and sequestering it and putting it into like building blocks. And nobody mentioned photosynthesis. Nobody mentioned plants. Nobody mentioned habitat restoration. And I'm like pulling out my, like, are you fucking kidding me? Like you guys. Like, and at that moment I was like, it's gotta be habitat restoration. I was like excited to see like carbon negativity even being talked about as a possibility. And that we had, you know, a political will enough that it was going to be put forth as an executive order, but that then needs to turn into legislation. So the executive order is set and then legislators are, are tasked, or hopefully, um, to go and like write laws that are like, this is how it's gonna happen. And the main way that it needs to happen is reducing emissions, like we're doing with like technological advances and like retooling our um, energy infrastructure, but also through carbon sequestration, through habitat restoration. And the thing with habitat restoration is that it provides all these other benefits. Like, first of all, it feels good. Studies show that serotonin rises in our bodies when our hands are in the soil. That we heal quicker and faster when we can see a tree outside of our hospital window than when there's, you know, nothing there except for fluorescent lights in our faces. Social, emotional, physical development of children is enhanced with regular access to nature. So there's that. Then there's also um, mitigating extreme weather. Like when we have wetlands protecting our cities, those wetlands act as a sponge for storm surge. Um, they also sequester carbon at really high rates. Um, we talked a little bit about fire and grasslands. Like um, perennial grasses that are alive in the summertime are gonna burn slower than invasive annual grasslands that are just covered in thatch. Also the bunched nature of the grasses that the um, fire will sort of jump from one grass to the other rather than sweeping through just like, you know, dried up tinder. There's like 
extreme weather mitigation, carbon sequestration, like just personal human well-being. They're securing our food supply by having more habitat for pollinators. We've all heard about bee colony collapse disorder, right? There's the sixth grade extinction that's happening. How do we slow down the sixth grade extinction? We create habitat for the animals so that they don't go extinct. We do those things like corridors where I was talking about with the butterflies so that those butterflies don't go extinct. So to me, it's a no-brainer. And the goal of this project of Wildfires to Wildflowers is to build grassroots momentum for these kinds of solutions, to like create bridges between like the scientific community, the grassroots climate change people, the um, policymakers, and really make a groundswell for this kind of thing. And, and like, so what I imagine is like, you know, we can send people to the moon, we can mobilize for massive wars, like we can create a weapon that could like wipe out the planet. So we have tremendous power. And it's just, it's a question of where do we want to put it? It's not a question of, is it possible? It's a question of like, we have choice and we can decide that we're going to put it in the direction of more love and more goodness and like more life or in the direction of continued destruction, you know? And the both are happening at the same time right now. So it's not, it's not either or at this moment, but I would like to, you know, push it more in the direction of the love and the goodness and the life and the, you know, feel good, the serotonin. You know, California is the fifth largest economy. We have this executive order put forth. We have legislation coming, like 100% renewable energy by 2030, right? Like we have this legislation coming, there is momentum. There's also dire need. California has a lot of influence. California is the fifth largest economy. We have Silicon Valley, we have Hollywood. We have probably the most progressive governor I've ever seen in my lifetime and I've lived here my whole life. Um, if California can begin to legislate actual real solutions, and if these actual real solutions can begin to take hold, then other states and other nations are going to take notice. I, I imagine us all coming together and creating that abundance and creating that, that possibility for something beautiful and connecting to nature and being fed by it, being nourished by it, and, and that, that being the engine that like, helps us go forward and work together and find the solutions and, and not give up. So you guys should all do that with me, Ooh, with us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. We have listeners worldwide on Eyes on Conservation, and I know that these wildfires to wildflower hikes or walks or interpretive experiences that you're offering you know, are based locally here in the San Francisco Bay Area. But what would you say to somebody who is inspired by what they're hearing today and potentially wants to get involved in something like this, habitat restoration or, you know, this kind of um, coalition building, environmental coalition building in their own communities? What advice do you have to offer them? Well, habitat needs to be restored everywhere, and it is happening everywhere. I know China's very involved right now in some big um, initiatives to restore habitat. There's like a billion tree, planting a billion trees thing that the face or the Salesforce guy just... So it's happening everywhere. So wait, you said the Salesforce guy is planting a billion trees? Or? <laughs> Mark Benioff, is that the Salesforce guy? Yeah, that is. Yeah, Mark Benioff has, has put forth a proposal to fund the planting of a billion trees around the world, which is great. Trees are fantastic, but trees aren't the only thing. Everybody talks about trees because we think of tree, the Amazon as being the lungs of the earth. But, you know, trees need an understory. Trees need shrubs. They need vines. They need grasses. They need flowers. They need... So actually, we have to, we have to, restore, eco, we have to restore the entire system, not just, not just plant trees. Not to diss the idea. 
I would say one of the first things that someone can do is learn where your local open spaces are, learn who is managing those spaces and offer assistance. And then also just begin to open your eyes and your ears more when you're, when you're walking around outside. Begin to notice the plants, begin to notice the sounds of the birds, begin to notice signs of animals, um, begin to slow down a little bit and attune to the natural world that's around us because it is around us even when we're in a city. Um, and there's ways of inviting that world into the city more. There's ways of caring for the world outside of the city. Whatever really ignites your passion. And then also there's the, there's the realm of advocating for more funding for habitat restoration and that it become something that is a global priority. And that can exist, that, adv- that advocating can happen with groups that already exist or it can happen by you know, going to those that are in power or in positions of power and telling them what we need. I'm personally very inspired by the work that you're doing, and I I enjoyed the experience that I had on Wildfires to Wildflowers. And so if you could just tell some listeners who might also feel this sense of inspiration how they can get in touch with you and find out more about your organization, how they can help, if they're local, how to get involved. We can go to the website. It's wildfires2wildflowers.org. There's no numbers in that. It's all written out. You can sign up on the email, sign up list there. You can donate. There's a tab to donate. Uh, we have monthly meetings also. You can come to the next hike, and you can contact me through my website. There's a contact page. Fantastic. Thank you so much for taking the time, Ildiko. I look forward to going out and experiencing nature and restoring habitats with you again. Thank you so much, Kristen. Special thanks to Ildigo Polony of Wildfires to Wildflowers and naturalist Paul Buscal of San Bruno Mountain Watch. The music you're listening to is Darkness and Light by Chris Collins of IndieMusicBox.com. If you liked this episode, please make a pledge on Patreon.com slash WildlandsCollective and follow Eyes on Conservation on Facebook. And don't forget to head over to WildlandsInc.org-193 for the show notes. This episode was produced and edited by me, Kristen Tiesch. Thanks for listening.